text that we're looking at for the sermon today is 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 17. If you want to follow along, if you want to have your uh, finger in the Bible, if you're using the Bibles that we provided for you, that's on page 1179, 1179. Paul writes, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. So I'm really uh, excited to share this message with you today. Uh, as I read Larry Hurtado's book, after which this series is named Destroyer of the Gods, um, this was the chapter I came to and I read it and I thought, our people need to hear this. This was the moment where I thought this book needs to be a sermon series for us because there is such a depth of of historical knowledge that I I was not acquainted with, um, but I was very much blessed by as I looked at how the early Christian church had a relationship with the scriptures. So that's what we're looking at today. Um, The third unique characteristic of the early Christian church is that they were a bookish people. Um, Now, if you haven't been with us through this series, Destroyer of the Gods is a series where we're looking at the first 300 years or so of Christian, early Christian history, um, where the, uh, right after Jesus died and rose and ascended, the early Christian church was a small group of people uh, practicing a religion that was illegal in the Roman Empire, and they grew to a movement of millions that took over that empire and became the official religion of that empire. And we're sort of examining how did that happen, what was unique about them that caused such an amazing movement. So before we get into um, kind of the ideas that Hurtado lays out historically for us, I want to just give us a sort of a background on the Bible. Um, for most of you, I think this will be review, but for some of us, maybe it's good to review, like why we have a Bible and where did it come from? <laughs> um, the Bible comes to us in two parts. Um, the first part is called the Old Testament. And uh, the Old Testament was written between about 1500 BC and uh, about 400 BC. And the reason we believe that the Old Testament is God's word and not just the words of human beings is because Jesus says so. We actually don't believe the Old Testament is God's word just because it's the Old Testament. Um, We believe the Old Testament because Jesus said that the Old Testament is truth. And so we go back to the Old Testament from Jesus' perspective because, again, Jesus is the centerpiece of all that we believe. Since Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and said that that would be proof that he is God and then pulled it off, we trust him as God. The New Testament of the scripture, which is the far smaller section, uh, was written between 45 AD and 90 AD, give or take a few years. So a far shorter time span. Um, It was written starting about 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And the reason that we believe that the New Testament of the Bible is also God's word is because Jesus said so. 
right? Jesus gave his apostles, apostle is just a word that means sent out one. Uh, He gave his sent out ones, his apostles, the ability to speak for him. And in fact, that's why we know which books of the New Testament are God's word, because they are connected to the authorship or at least oversight of an apostle, one of Jesus' disciples. Now, what we have to understand as we talk about the early Christian church and their relationship with the scriptures is that the early Christian church couldn't just go out to their local bookstore and buy themselves a Bible. Because not only were the scriptures still being written at that time, but the circulation of those books of the Bible needed to happen as well. In fact, probably the first place in history where you would have been able to have a completely compiled New Testament of the Bible would have been about 150 A.D., Um, The reason I say that year is that was the the time period where there was a a church heretic who said, I'm going to compile all the books that I think are the scripture, and he was totally wrong. Um, But the church said, okay, well, if people are going to start claiming this is the Bible, then we got to get together and make sure we know what is scripture and what isn't scripture. And so about 150 AD, the church got together, said, okay, which books do we all have that we all recognize as scripture that is the New Testament? So we have to kind of keep that operating in the background as we think about these principles that the early Christian church had um, as they interacted with the scripture. Now, I put put together a note sheet for you today, and it's got a whole lot of fill in the blanks because there's going to be a whole lot of information that I'm going to give you today. And so I would encourage you to take notes or at least think about coming back to this um, message and listening to it again because there's just a lot here. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through four characteristics of the relationship that the early Christian church had with the scriptures. Okay? And you can see those are the four points on your note sheet. Uh, the first of those characteristics of the relationship of the early Christians with the scriptures is that they were detail-oriented. They were detail-oriented. Um, at that time, the idea of a religion that was based on a sacred text was a completely foreign idea. In fact, the only real religious identity that had a sacred text were the Old Testament Christians with the Old Testament. No other religious view had a sacred text that they would go back to. And so the idea of Christians saying, our religion is all based on this sacred text was a completely unique idea uh, in those first three centuries. Um, Kind of as as an aside, it, it sort of continues to be somewhat of a unique position. Um, Even as we think of our religious climate today, we might say, well, there are other religions that have sacred texts. Probably most notably for us is Islam with the Quran. Um, But the way that uh, an average Muslim, especially in the West, in Canada, uh, the way that they relate to the Quran is different than the way Christians relate to the Bible. Okay? So as Christians, what you hear me tell you is that you ought to be reading the scriptures on your own and you ought to be holding me accountable to the truth of those scriptures, right? And that you can read those scriptures for yourself. They should be beneficial for you in your devotional life, all these sorts of things. And that everything that we believe, teach, and confess comes from the scriptures. That's not the same relationship a Muslim has with the Quran. Muslims have the Quran as a foundation for their religion, but as far as it practically plays out in their life, they mostly go on the teaching of their imam. Um, The Quran for them is less of a a document that holds all of their teaching and more of a foundation for what an imam might want to teach them and how they might want to live out their lives. Um, And this, you can actually see this if you ever get into a conversation with a Muslim about about their religion. Um, They don't really want to talk so much about what the Quran says, they, they more want to talk about what the Bible doesn't say because they know that's your relationship with the scripture, that you always go back to the scripture for all of your truth. Well, they don't necessarily only go back to the Quran for their teaching. By the way, this is also why um, in the West, many people will say Islam is a religion of peace 
Because there are sections of the Quran that teach that, but there are also sections of the Quran that don't teach that. Those sections just aren't taught in the West. And so if you were to take what the Quran says, word for word, the same way we would approach the Bible, you would find Islam is not a religion of peace. But the way that it's taught in the West, it is. And so you can't actually accuse any of the Muslims really out here who live by us of not living a religion of peace. They genuinely do believe that because that's what they're taught because they don't have the same relationship with the Quran that we have with the Bible. Now, part of that aside is to help you understand a little bit about your Islamic friends, but it's also to help us understand um, the uniqueness of the idea of coming back to a scripture, a sacred text, as the foundation for everything that we believe. Right? This is not about what I think or what I choose to teach you. You are given the whole scripture and asked, called, to look back on it, study it, know it, and believe everything in it. Now, like I said, this was unique both back in um, the first couple centuries and also for us. And I think one of the reasons it's re unique is that once you, you say our religion is only based on one sacred text, you put yourself in two challenging positions. And the first of those positions is that your religion becomes unchangeable. And what I mean by that is not that you can't change your teachings, of course you can do that, but you are very easily held accountable for those changes, right? If you write everything down and say, this is what we believe, and then a hundred years or a thousand years later, you're not believing what you said you believed back then, well, people can say, well, look, these people, they change their mind all the time. What's to believe in their religion? When you put your text down on paper, you make it unchangeable. Um, Think for a second uh, about, like if I were to, to be accused of a crime and, um, and somebody came to me and they said, were you at this place at this time? They asked for my alibi and I didn't say anything. They might still be able to convict me of a crime, but it would be far harder because they don't have anything that I said, anything that I stated, anything that I put down. What if then I said though, okay, my alibi is I was at the store at that time. Well, suddenly they have something that they can hold me accountable to, right? And, and this is exactly what the Christians did with the scriptures. When they wrote these things down and said, this is what we believe, they made themselves essentially accountable to everyone outside of them. The second challenge that you put yourself in if you put your religion down into a text is that your religion becomes testable. And what I mean by that is that um, a person can look back at your text and they can say, well, this thing has changed, or that was corrupted, or that wasn't copied down correctly, or that's not historically accurate. Right? A, pers a person can actually criticize what you fundamentally believe, even if you've never changed that belief. Again, think of me giving my alibi for my committed crime. Um, if I just say I was at the store, that's something you can hold me accountable to. But what if I said, no, I was specifically at that superstore over there on Argentia from 3.30 to 4.30, and I talked to four specific people. Here are their names, and I bought olive oil and milk while I was there, and here's the receipt. Well, suddenly there's a whole bunch of other things you can test to see if I'm falsifying the story, right? Now, the interesting thing about the, the early Christian church is that they were hyper-detail-oriented. Um, at the time, the longest letters that we get from, from one person to another come from people, um, maybe you know these names, like Cicero and Seneca. Um, they were some of the, the more learned people who would send letters to people that they knew in order to educate them. Some of these long letters from people like Cicero or Seneca are about a thousand words long. About a thousand words long. Um, the New Testament, in comparison, is massive. 
You think about Paul. Paul, the apostle, wrote letters to a number of churches and individuals that we have contained for us in the New Testament. The length of his letters in comparison to what Cicero or Seneca wrote is, is uncomparable. The book of Romans is 7,100 words, 1 Corinthians 6,800, 2 Corinthians about 4,500 words. And one scholar that I read on this said, when people received Paul's letters for the first time, they would have been more surprised by the length than by the content. Isn't that interesting? You put on top of this the length of the gospels. So the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are all even longer than Paul's letters. Um, The shortest of those gospels is Mark. It's about 11,000 words. And if you take Luke and Acts together, which they're meant to be two volumes of the same story, they together are 38,000 words. These were massive documents, super detailed documents that the early Christian church was putting out. And on top of this, the idea of having four gospels was pretty unique. You have four biographies of Jesus, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The idea of writing multiple multiple biographies of a single character in history was unheard of, and yet the early Christians wrote four in the span of about 20 years or so, depending on who who you trust in scholarly research. Why have so much detail? Why be so specific? Why make these long, long documents? I mean, I think every person who comes to the Bible for the first time looks at it and says, that's really long. It is. Why? Well, I think the first thing for us to learn is the Christians weren't afraid of being proven wrong. Right? They weren't trying to make up a vague story in order to get one by on people. They knew what they had seen. They knew it was historically accurate. And they knew that even if people would test them later on it, they would find the exact same thing they found. And this is actually played out. After 2,000 years of history, These texts being able to be scrutinized by people who do not believe what we believe, they have yet to find a contradiction or a historically inaccurate fact in the entire scripture. Now, they'll make the claim that this thing is inaccurate or this thing isn't um, in line with other parts of the scripture, but there are actually answers to every single one of those questions. And by the way, if anybody ever comes to you with a question about the, the validity of the scriptures as just a historical document, come talk to me. I've got the answers for those things. But secondly for us, and I think more devotionally, probably personally for us, it's to remind ourselves that Christianity is a specific religion. Um, I don't mean specific in the sense of specific from other religions, but that the practice of Christianity includes a lot of nuanced detail. I think the temptation for us in the West is to think of Christianity in very simplistic terms. And that's not because the The message of Christianity isn't simple. Jesus died for you. You are forgiven. You will live forever by faith in him. That's a simple message. But Christianity, as it is played out in your life, is very nuanced, is very specific, very detail-oriented. The tough thing for us as Christians is we're very often tempted to say, I know what I know, and that's enough. I know the basics, and that's good for me. That's not really what a Christian believes. A Christian believes that the detail that is contained in the scriptures is worth working through. That there are a lot of different things that Jesus said and did, and they have implications for a lot of different areas of my life. Paul's letters, they're so long because he's working out the implications of belief in Jesus into different areas of Christian life. And we ought to do the same thing. To understand that that Christianity is not just this thing we do on the side, but it has its well, tentacles, for lack of a better way of talking, into every aspect of our life. That every decision that I make, every moment of my life, could be, should be, influenced by what the scriptures say, because the scriptures have something to say. 
I think our fear is to reduce the scripture down to only talking about what we're going to do for eternity, but not about all the different things that happen in our life. And if we believe that, if we believe that that being a a Christian is just about knowing the simple message, we lose something. Uh, We lose the fact that, that Jesus has given us an entire life to live, that he's not just an escape plan. He's a brother who walks with us. He gives us a new purpose to our life. He gives us a way to really be human. The way that the Apostle Paul says it in the text that we read was that we are wise for salvation through the scriptures. Wise for salvation. It's a phrase that doesn't show up anywhere else in the scripture. But it seems that what Paul is saying is that the scriptures not only teach you about salvation, but that they give you all of the steps along the way to that salvation. That there is wisdom given to you in every moment of every day. And that if we were willing to dig into that text, to look at all the details, we would find the nuance that the scripture holds. If you're taking notes with us, I want you to fill in this blank because I think it's just a good thing for us to meditate on as we reorient ourselves to what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is never satisfied with how much they know the scriptures. A Christian is never satisfied with how much they know the scriptures. If you're not satisfied with how much you know the scriptures, I encourage you to be in a Bible study, to be here in worship, to be reading the scripture on your own. It's a big book, but Jesus is giving you time to read it. The second point that I want to give you as our, our, our early Christian relationship with uh, the scriptures is that the Christians were intellectual. They were intellectual about the scriptures. At this time, the only people who really poured over a text, who worked through all the details of a text and, and argued with one another about what a text meant or didn't mean, were the high-learned philosophers of the day, kind of the people we would think of as their, like university professors. They were not only the people who had the education to pour over a text like that, but they also had the time. Because the average person was working as a day laborer, trying to just keep themselves alive by providing enough for their family. They didn't have time to go to a text and read it over and try to figure out exactly what it meant and have a philosophical discussion about it. But the Christian's relationship with the scripture was very different. The Christians believed that the text of the Bible was actually to be in the hands of every person that the average person should be able to read the scripture and to be able to understand it, to learn from it, to gain wisdom from it, and be able to have discussions about it. Um, You can see this from the way that the Christians copied the scriptures. Um, As we look back at the old manuscripts, old copies of the Bible that we have, even from the first, second, third century, you'll notice that they have a distinct difference between some of them. Some of them very obviously were copied for professional use. The lines are very straight. The letters are very perfect. They seem to be used in some sort of public worship gathering. But we also have copies of the scripture that seem to be almost personal handwriting. That there were copies of the scripture that people were making for themselves so that they could read them on their own. Not for any sort of professional uh, process or or accomplishment, but just so that they they could read it themselves and learn from it. By the way, this is exactly the same thing that happened um, in the Reformation. In the 1500s, Martin Luther translated the Bible into the common language of the German people so that the German people could read the scriptures. At that time, only the priestly class of the church were able to really read the scriptures. Luther said, that's not what the scriptures are for. They are for the average person. And, well, you know what happened. The Reformation, a huge movement that took over the Christian church. The same thing happened when the Bible got into the hands of the people. But it wasn't just that it was in their hands, it also excited their intellect. 
Um, As we look back at this period of time, we find that the Christians were not just copying the scriptures for themselves, they were also prolific writers. Um, It's a attested by multiple scholars that that the Christians were writing more about their faith than anybody else at that time or the amount of people that they had. They were writing things like commentaries on the scriptures, apologetic arguments for the faith, topical devotional resources, even what we might consider like fan fiction about the characters of the Bible. They were writing all of this because the scriptures excited their intellect. It made them imaginative about the scriptures. It made them want to explain it. It made them want to, to give it to other people. And, and that, sh- that bared itself out in the way that the, the Christians wrote their own texts that accompanied the Bible. And so I would ask ourselves this, are we excited about the scriptures? I think it's easy to, to read the scriptures and think, this is boring, or I don't get it. I'm sure many of you have felt that as you've opened the Bible. But I would challenge you, I'd press back on you a little bit with that. When has anything that's super good been really easy the first time? I mean, how many times has one of us said, we have to watch a couple episodes until you really get into it? How many of us drank coffee the first time and thought it was wonderful? How many of us poured ourselves a glass of whiskey the first time and thought, this tastes wonderful? Things that are really great, that are complex, that are worth enjoying, very often require you to work on them a little bit. And so in the same way that you might have to drink coffee a couple times before you realize how awesome it is, if you're not excited by the scriptures, start reading the scriptures. You'll find that they will show their excitement to you. And if you need a little bit of help, I do Bible studies. And we have life groups where you can study with other Christians. You can find that excitement in the scriptures by getting into the scriptures. The third characteristic that the early Christians had as a, in their relationship with the scriptures was that they were devotional devotional. Um, Up to this point in history, much of the writing that was done was done um, for the purpose of storing information. So think like your hard drive on your computer. It stores a whole bunch of files that you're not necessarily looking back on regularly. You just have to keep that information, right? Most of the writing that was done at this time was for that purpose. And because of that, you had to be as efficient as possible in writing down that information because paper was expensive, And so if you wanted to contain the history of your people or the instructions to some sort of activity or or process, you contained it in as little paper as possible. And what that turned out to be was text that was written um, primarily in all capital letters with no spaces, no punctuation, um, and in very small font. Can you imagine it? It would kind of look like this. You can read that if you take the time to go slowly over each of the letters, but it's not easy to read, right? It's not easy to read. So you can contain as much information as you want in in as little space as possible. What the Christians did, though, is they believed the scriptures needed to be readable. They believed the scriptures needed to be readable. Um, And the way that they did this is they introduced things like elementary punctuation, They would use more spaces between sentences. They would have things like paragraph breaks. They would use larger fonts. They would use capital letters at the beginning of sentences to make it far more easy to read the text, sort of like this, right? It's far easier to read the exact same letters when there's spaces and there's punctuation and there's paragraph breaks, sentence breaks. The Christians believed that the scriptures needed to be copied this way because they expected to read them regularly. They weren't just a a book they put on the shelf to store information. It was a living document that they were using regularly. 
Uh, On top of this, the Christians were the first ones who really copied the scripture um, using the, excuse me, wrong one. They primarily used the codex. (laughs) They uh, they copied the scripture using the codex. Um, Now, you might wonder, okay, what's a codex? Um, A codex is what you primarily think of as a book today, okay? So it's it's pages bound on one side. This is a codex, okay? Um, Compare that to a scroll. Um, At that time, 95% of all the writing that was done was done on a scroll. But the Christians uniquely used the codex almost exclusively. 75% of all the writing that the Christians did, both scripture and not, was done in codex form. And when it came to the scripture specifically, they almost exclusively used the codex. Why would you use the codex? I mean, to be honest, making a codex is a lot harder than using a scroll. If you want to make a scroll, you just get a piece of papyrus and you start writing and you roll it up when you're done. But if you're making a codex, you need to estimate how many pages you need, cut those pages out of papyrus, uh, write on those pages, make sure you don't mix up the order of the pages, and then make sure you bind them on one side. It's a lot of extra work. So why did the Christians do it? Well, maybe to understand, go back to those 5% of things that were written by the ancient world that were in codex form. They were primarily things like manuals. So like a cookbook, or like if you wanted to write down the directions for how to build a bridge, you would put it in a codex form. Because codices were smaller, they were easier to transport, and they were easier to reference. Because in a scroll, you have to open up the whole thing and literally scroll to the spot you want to be at. With a codex, you can open to a specific page and reference exactly what you want to reference. So can you see why the Christians used the codex? Because even though it was more work, they wanted to be able to take it with them wherever they went, and they wanted to be able to reference it whenever they needed it. They wanted to go to specific spots in the text to reference it. Um, Let me ask you this. How many of us want to bring a Bible along with us wherever we go? Let me ask a different question. How many of us see the need to bring a Bible along with us wherever we go? You might say to yourself, okay, but I have my Bible on my phone, My phone's in my pocket. I've always got the Bible with me. How many times do you open it a day? Now, maybe you have all the scriptures memorized and God be praised for that, but I think there would be a number of situations in every one of our days where it would be good for us to know what the scripture says. The early Christians believed that. And so they brought their scriptures along with them and referenced them regularly, whether in conversations with people or just for their own devotional needs. the, the, uh, The book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, um, it tells us about what God prescribes for the new kings of Israel. Um, it, it says that when a king takes the throne, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. When it talks about the law, it talks about the first five books of the Bible. Um, why do you think God did that? Why do you think God made his kings of his nation copy for themselves the entire Bible at that time? Was it just because God likes busy work? Or was it because he knew that the most powerful man in his nation should have a knowledge of the scriptures? And that by forcing him to copy down every single letter of the whole Bible at that time, he would be aware of everything that's written in it. He would have poured over every word. He would have poured over every sentence, every paragraph. Would have thought through all the things that he was writing down. Now, you might say to yourself, okay, fine. I'm not the king of Israel, though. Well, not so fast. In the New Testament, Peter tells us that 
We are chosen, priest, uh, chosen people, a royal priesthood. God has made us royalty. Kings and queens, princes and princesses, if you like, in his kingdom. And in the same way that God prescribed for his Old Testament kings to know the scriptures, he has prescribed it for you as well. Now, I'm not saying that you need to copy the entire Bible, although if you did, I bet you would find a lot of benefit in it. But I am asking you to think about your devotional life. Do you pour over the scriptures? As you read them regularly, do you think about every word? Do you think about the sentences? Do you think about where the paragraphs break? Why does he use this word? Why would he say it like this? Who is he talking to? Why is he saying it this way? A devotional life is one that sees the scriptures as necessary for every moment of life. To be referenced, to be known, to be studied. So that we can know what Jesus has to say. The last of the characteristics then of the early Christian church is that they were personally invested. They're personally invested in the scriptures. Um, I already went through the idea of making a codex, which was a very time-intensive activity comparatively to writing something on a scroll. But you have to also then put with this the idea that these texts were really long. Remember we said Romans was 7,100 uh, 7, words long. Uh, one scholar says that just to copy the book of Romans would take you about 11 and a half hours of focused work. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't handle 11 and a half hours of focused work in a single day. So this would take multiple days just to copy the text besides the binding of the codex. So if we're putting it all together, one book, one copy of one book of the Bible could take maybe even weeks to make. And yet the Christians were copying all the time. The sheer volume of copies of the New Testament that we still have now, assuming that many of them have gone away or been destroyed over the last 2,000 years of history, is unsurpassed in antiquity. We have a couple hundred copies of Julius Caesar, for example, and we have 24,000 copies of the New Testament. The Christians are copying and copying and copying, even though it costs them time and in many cases money. On top of this, you have to understand that um, the early Christians did not have a postal system. So it's not like you could make your copy of Romans, your couple weeks of work, and then shove it in the mailbox and the Romans would just take it to that person that you want to get that copy of Romans. You actually had to take it yourself, which took time, took money. It was not safe to travel in the ancient world. Yet the Christians were willing to do that. They were willing to sacrifice so that they and others could read the scriptures. Let me ask you this. We don't have to copy the Bible for one another anymore, but are we willing to sacrifice for the scriptures? You know, one of the things that I run into as a pastor, when I, especially when I do one-on-one -on -one visits, um, home visits with some of you, um, is uh, this idea when I talk about reading the Bible at home that, uh, oh, I need, to, I need to find some space in my schedule to do that. Or I really wish there was some more time so that I could read the Bible more. And don't worry, I'm not singling out any one of you. This, this comes up all the time. It's a very common, common refrain that I hear from people. Um, if I can just be very honest, I love you guys, but that will never work. It will never work. You have time for what you believe is valuable, and you will make time for it. 
and you will sacrifice other things for it. I mean, necessarily, whatever you're doing, you are sacrificing everything else you possibly could be doing at that moment to do that thing. If you want time to read the scriptures, you've got to be willing to sacrifice for it. So what could it be? What in your schedule could you sacrifice for the sake of knowing the scriptures, not just for yourself, but for the sake of others? For having the time to be available when, when your neighbor wants to talk or your family member needs some encouragement? Maybe you could sacrifice watching TV or listening to podcasts or playing video games or watching TV or maybe a sport you participate in or maybe watching TV. Maybe it's kids' activities or maybe it's watching TV. Did you know that the average Canadian spends 2.1 hours a day watching TV before the pandemic. Now, I'm not saying TV is sinful, but I am saying that there is nothing on the TV right now that extols Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And while it may not be tearing down your faith, it's certainly not building it up. And I'm not saying you need to be a Luddite and take your TV out of your house, but I am saying maybe we could sacrifice a little bit of that so we could hear what our Savior has to say. You know, there are so many preachers on the TV who do not look like preachers. They are telling you to believe this, do this, fear this, sacrifice for this. And I'm not saying all of them are malicious, but they're not preachers of Jesus. So let's think about it. Maybe for you it isn't the TV, maybe it's something else. But are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of knowing the scriptures for ourselves and for others? So let's summarize. The early Christians believed that the Bible was intellectually rigorous and detailed, but it was also for the average person. And so the average people who made up the early Christian church put their personal time, energy, and resources into knowing the scriptures and making sure others could know the scriptures. And after all that, you might be feeling a little bit guilty because there is not a person in this room, myself included, who is anywhere near that kind of devotion to the scriptures. And for that, I think we need to repent. We need to repent that in our decadent society, there are so many other things that take our attention and our money and our resources and go back to what matters. So as the comfort from this sermon, let's remember why the Christians love those scriptures so much. Because of the message they contained, right? What does Paul write to Timothy? He says, the holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation to give you a hope for your eternity, to know that this life is not all that there is, that life is bigger than this. And along the way, every answer to every question that you've ever asked, maybe not the way you want it answered, but the answer that Jesus wants to give you. So that in a world where uh, people are going from bad to worse, where evildoers and imposters are deceiving one another and being deceived, and there's craziness all around you, there is this one thing that stands firm, that can give you peace and joy in the face of the craziness of life. It can make you wise for salvation. So, continue in what you have learned. Continue in these scriptures. You've already been started in them. And you know those who you've learned it from, your previous pastors, your parents, those who have gone before you, consider their way of life, the outcome of their faith, and continue in yourself, being devoted to that scripture, which you've known, maybe not for all of you from infancy, 
but from at least this moment. Those words that make you wise for salvation and faith in Christ Jesus, because all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for not just some good works, not just the word good works at church, but every good work. If you're worried about the world around you, if you stay up at night thinking about all the things that are going wrong or could go wrong or have gone wrong, all the things that break your heart, that bend your mind, that make you worried, despondent, depressed, the scripture has the answers. It may not necessarily make this life better, but it will give you wisdom for salvation in a life that never ends. So continue in what you have learned and been convinced of, and then be devoted to those scriptures. Be willing to sacrifice for them. Be willing to dig into them. Um, If you're wondering how to do that, if you're like, okay, I repent, and I want to be in the scriptures. I want to be devoted to those scriptures. Let me give you four ways you can do that. They're listed for you at the bottom of your note sheet if you want, but I'll put them also up on the screen for you. First, the easiest one, obsess over the sermon text. Um, On the bottom of every one of your note sheets, I always put the text to next week's sermon. What would it look like if you spent this week looking forward to next week or every week looking forward to Sunday reading that text? Just read it once every day. Think about it, pray about it, meditate over it, ask it questions, see what questions it rises in your mind. What parts frustrate you? What parts challenge you? What parts don't make sense? Then write down all those things, bring them to worship on Sunday, listen to me preach about it, and if I don't answer your question, ask in the question time. If you did nothing else but obsessed over the sermon text, you would gain so much from God's word. Another way you could do it is you could participate in every home of sanctuary. Many of you are, and praise God for that. Every Home of Sanctuary is a resource that we are working through as a congregation to help us all grow in our homes uh, through God's Word, to make God's Word something we don't just do on Sunday, but we do every day in our lives. If you haven't chosen to be part of Every Home of Sanctuary, talk to my wife, Johanna. She'll get you set up. Third, you could participate in the Bible reading intensive. I know it's on hold right now, but we will do it. And when we do it, you should come. Because a Christian is never satisfied with how much they know the Scripture. And whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or four years, it's really good to learn how to read the Bible. And maybe you won't learn anything, but you'll be there to encourage those who are learning something about how to read the scriptures. Or maybe fourth, and probably the most challenging, uh, participate in a daily prayer discipline. I would love to do this with you. One of the things the early Christian church did basically for its entire history until about the last hundred years are daily prayers. Um, They were called the, the orders of the church. And the church would participate in these daily prayers, even if they weren't together. If they were at work or on the road, they would stop and would pray these prayers together, knowing that other Christians in their city from their congregation were praying these same prayers with them, even if they weren't physically together. What if we did that? What if we had a group chat or just a couple of us holding one another accountable to say, hey, it's nine o'clock, let's pray. Hey, it's 1230, let's pray. Hey, it's six. Let's pray. It's nine. Let's pray. There's a number of ways that that can look. I'll give you two suggestions. First of all, Martin Luther put together a daily prayer discipline. He said, you should pray when you wake up, pray when you go to sleep, and pray at every meal. And he laid out prayers you can pray at those moments. Could you do that? Or maybe you would join the sons of Solomon 
Sons of Solomon is a, a daily prayer discipline based on the Psalms. Every day you pray certain Psalms at certain times of the day. Would you do that with me? If you're interested in, in getting into one of these and maybe doing it along with me, come and talk to me. Make God's word part of your life every single day. But then remember what God says in Isaiah. He says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I'm not asking any of us to become high-level biblical scholars, but I'm asking us to be a community that loves God's word holds each other accountable to it, holds me accountable to it, and then waits to see what God does. Because God promises that when his word is preached, when his word is prayed, when his word comes out from his mouth, then it does what he wants it to do. And I don't know what that is, but I'm excited to find out. So let's be in God's word together until Jesus comes back. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you put together the scriptures for our learning. We ask that as we read them, we would read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest their content so that we can be wise for salvation. We ask that you would make our community one that is known not for particularly interesting programs or advertisements or even friendly people, but a love for your word. That we see your word as primary in every conversation, every relationship, every time we get together. And we pray that you would keep your promise that where your word is preached, your will gets done. Even if it is not what we expect or what we might have planned, we know it is good for us and we trust you. So make it happen among us. We ask that all in your name.